Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are committed to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. To stay connected to all that's happening here, visit RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This message is from our series on Philippians 2.5 from Pastor Bill Clark. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series on the attitude of Jesus. It's based on the principle that was found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be that the same as should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So we pondered together in our preaching team meetings about what was the attitude of Jesus. And so we looked into the Gospels in particular and we found these thoughts about how Jesus' attitude must have been conveyed to other people. The text from Philippians chapter 2 begins with, your attitude should be that as Christ Jesus. And then it says, for though he was in the form of God, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he voluntarily let it go. The image being this letting go like he's holding on to a tree limb on top of a cliff And he just voluntarily let himself go into this earth and all of its struggles on our behalf. And so today we continue this attitude. The first first of the series, I talked about humility and confidence, this blend of humility and confidence that Jesus had. Adam last week spoke about the compassion that Jesus had toward all of the people whom he encountered. So today I want to talk about one that I got to thinking about a lot, and, and I think it's probably built on the fact that I'm a person who has probably a, a little bit of a struggle with fearing things at times. And I got to thinking about, I wonder if Jesus had fears. And I looked into the text, and I looked at Jesus' life, and I concluded, if Jesus had fears, they didn't emerge until the very end of his life on this earth. I'll talk more about that later. So I want to talk about the fearlessness of Jesus and what fearlessness means in that context. In saying Jesus had an attitude of fearlessness, I am not suggesting he was like some modern-day version of a superhero, that he was invulnerable to, to pain, impervious to pain or injury or hurt feelings. And certainly at the end of his life, this wasn't the case. Jesus, we believe and teach in the Christian tradition, was both fully God and fully human. And so he had fully human emotions. And on that night of his betrayal and the death that followed the next morning, the next day, Jesus was, was clearly a person who was beyond agitated. He was fearful. He, he begged God to please let this cup pass from me. Let it go away. But God's will and plan had to be fulfilled. But Jesus clearly, if you just simply read the Gospels, had no fear of anything external to him, nothing external to him. He didn't fear the religious leaders of his day, though they generally opposed him and um, was a, a very difficult relationship. He didn't fear the Roman occupying army or their leaders, and he made no attempt to cultivate acceptance by them. If he had feared death, he didn't, again, show it until the night when he was betrayed and arrested. But he was not preoccupied with thoughts of illness. He, was never, he never owned a home. He never had the security of possessions that 
we at least think can help us with our fears. He only had the clothes on his back, and he only feared one thing. He only feared one thing, and I'll get to that in a little while, because that's the heart of the message. Several years ago, when we were living in California, our family made a trip to Yosemite National Park. We, it was a fairly short drive from, from um, Sacramento, but we wanted to spend a few nights, so we rented an RV. The whole memory of it reminds me of a bad Robin Williams movie, RV. And I picture that whole thing with, you know, the plastered sign on the sign of the RV, you know, rented by. Anyway, we went to, we went to Yosemite. And the family's doing exciting things like climbing mountains and cliffs and all this stuff. And I just wanted to go for a walk, just kind of needed a walk, a little bit of rest. And so I took a trail and went to the, to the base of a 3,000-foot granite cliff called El Capitan. I don't know if you've been there, but it's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. 3,000 vertical feet of granite. I mean, I... I can't imagine how many countertops that could make. But anyway, it was an ex- extremely impressive sight. And I remember thinking about it, and as I was pondering this message, I, I can remember how I felt. I really felt very small and insignificant. You know, this mountain is this sheer 3,000 feet of granite rock just right above me. And then above me were a few people who were not going to climb the whole thing, or maybe some of them were, but they were driving in the pitons into the, into the rock, and they were going from rope to rope. And just a few weeks ago, by the way, I read that there was a guy who did it by hand, without any equipment at all, and he climbed El Capitan in close to four hours. And I'm thinking, I was fearful just looking up at the thing and seeing people trying to climb that mountain and that guy climbed it hand over, I mean, there's, he's probably institutionalized now, but nevertheless, he did it, and it's an extraordinary thing. And so I got to thinking about what I felt like when I was at the base of that rock, 3,000 feet of granite, I felt really small. So while I was thinking about that, I googled, what is, what is the human body made up of? Uh, There's a reason why I Googled that. And it turns out we're made up of 60% water. So that kind of helped me think back to when I was looking up at that mountain, feeling insignificant and small, at the time about 55 years old, way over half of my life is gone. And then I attached that to this notion that I'm made up of 60% water. And I concluded... I am a short-lived bag of water. And I'm sorry to tell you, but that's you too. We're all short-lived bags of water. And that granite rock has existed long, long ago before we ever came. And it'll be there long after we're gone. Why do people feel insecure? And why do we feel fear? Well, there are a thousand reasons, partly because we do live only a relatively short time and partly because our bodies uh, can spring leaks and have problems. We sometimes fear disasters and disease where 
We're just mortal people. And that can make us feel like very fearful creatures in the light of those things which seem so much bigger than us and problems and struggles that seem so hard to overcome. So is there anything we should fear? Is fear an emotion that has any use for us? Does it accomplish anything for us? And the vast answer to that would be most of the time, no. Yes, sometimes for our own protection we feel some sort of fear and we stray away from dangerous things or places. But for the most part, fear is, a, is an emotion that we'd like to get rid of. But there is one fear that the Bible talks about over and over that we're supposed to have. We're actually supposed to have this particular fear. It's called the fear of the Lord. Now, having said that, I don't believe in a God who we ought to be afraid of every moment of our lives. That's not really what the fear of the Lord means. The fear of the Lord is rather to have a complete reliance on the promise of the covenant God. You say that again. It's to have a complete reliance on the promise of a covenant God. We believe God is loving and gracious and kind and a thousand positive adjectives, but he is also our covenant God. And back into the Old Testament, as we call it, or the Hebrew Scriptures, God had an agreement, and it was a really one-sided deal, one-sided on his end. I mean, we were the beneficiaries of this one-sided deal. God said, I'll make you a promise. I will be your God and you can be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And it's a one-sided agreement because countless times the people of God in the past and the people of God in the present will violate the terms of the agreement. We will not faithfully be God's people. We will be people who are stricken with fear. We will be people who are stricken with doubt. We will be people who are unloving or uncaring. We will do those sorts of things. And yet God always keeps his end of the bargain. He never backs off of the claim and the promise of the covenant that he made with us. So in commenting on this passage... I want to read Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. Theologian Mark Laberton describes vividly the sad context that the people of God of the ancient times were in. They were captives now in exile in the land of Babylon. They were held captive to a people who hated them. Their former land of plenty was now gone. They were hungry and to the point of starving. They were captives in a foreign land, and they were very, very afraid. They were mistreated. They were starving to death. They were thirsty. They were short-lived bags of water. And they were meant in that place by the Babylonians to die. So they asked the question continually, where is God? What about this covenant And, of course, the answer was God was still with them. They had broken the covenant and made this action happen. But in the midst of all of them, the prophet Isaiah said to the people of God, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, 
He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. And it concludes very simply, do not be afraid, for I am with you. That's the promise of a covenant God. Only the Lord could calm them. Don't be afraid, he said. Only I have the power to hurt you, and I will never ever hurt you. That's the promise of this covenant God. So I wonder as you come to church on a Sunday morning, I wonder what your fears might be. I could give you a catalog of mine, but it wouldn't serve any particular purpose. So just think along with me. I think as a culture, we're living in a time where there are people around us and perhaps us who fear things like crime and violence. We fear foreign countries with bad intentions. We fear immigrants, even though most of us have never met or spoken with one, but we still live with this odd fear. We fear natural disasters, and we've had several of those lately. We fear a falling stock market, and we live sometimes day by day with the emotions of, how's my, how are my, how's my money doing? We fear illness and death, which is a very real thing. It's been on my mind lately here a good bit because just in the last month and a half, Joe Scruggs and I have done six funerals together because people are short-lived creatures. And there are a whole bunch of fears that we have. There are a whole bunch of them. So the question becomes, did Jesus really live without fear? Did he really live without fear? And can we? The answers are yes, and yes. So how do we get rid of fear? We are, after all, I'll remind you one more time to your dismay, we are just short-lived bags of water who are very vulnerable. We're not all that strong, and we don't live all that long. Jesus had a fearless attitude because he trusted the covenant promises of God. It's as simple as that, though the whole scene behind it is quite complex. Perhaps you're thinking, well, after all, he was Jesus. He was the Son of God, but so it must have been easy for him to have lived a fearless life, but it wasn't. Jesus had flaky followers, disciples who followed when they wanted to and not when they didn't. He had a lot of enemies. He was homeless. It's not a representative, it's not a, 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 a sort of a, what word am I looking for here? It's not a picture of a calm world that Jesus lived in. Let's put it that way. God's purposes with Jesus was for him to be on a mission to reclaim a broken world. And so our purpose as the followers of Christ are to be people in the army of God 
to reclaim a broken world for the sake of God's purposes. That's our mission. Our mission is not just to reclaim the broken world now. As theologian N.T. Wright likes to say, Christians are focused on the hope of life after death, which is a great hope and one to hang on to. But he says the hope we ought to really focus on is the life after life after death. The life after life after death. Meaning that when we're with God in perpetuity and eternity, he isn't just going to be having us just relax all the time. He will come back to this broken world and he will reclaim it as his own. And we will be agents in that reclamation project. So we have not just a promised future of heaven. We have the promised future of a life working on behalf of, again, the ministry of Jesus to reclaim this broken world because God loves it so. Somehow we get this notion, which is not a part of Christian theology, that God is at war with this world. God deeply, deeply loves this world and wants it to march to the tune of love and grace and mercy and hope, hope for people who struggle and who have fears. So if you have doubts about this subject, I don't blame you, but ask yourself two questions. Does God have the resources to meet the needs of your life? Does God have the resources to meet the needs of your life? If the answer to that is yes, then ask this question. Therefore, since God has the resources to meet the needs of my life, can I take, my, can I take risks in my life for the sake of other people? Can I take risks of my life for the sake of other people? Can I take risks in my life for the sake of reclaiming a world that is broken, that needs peace and needs the grace that the Christian community can offer? So what do the risks imply? If I asked you to take risks for reclaiming a broken world, what do the risks imply? So here are just some of the very simple things that we need to be able to answer affirmatively. Will I love people who don't think like I do? If we're going to reclaim this world, we're going to have to have conversations with people who don't think like we do. We might find they have something really good to say. Will I speak kindly with a person who is afraid or perhaps different than me? Will I trust that God is a superabundant God and there's enough for everybody in God's economy? if it's rightly shared? And will I risk some of my resources for the sake of those in need? Will I risk some of my resources of wealth or resources of money of any kind or the resources of my energy or time? Will I risk some of that for the sake of the healing of a broken world? Because it was Jesus' attitude that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be held on to. If that's his attitude, then what will we be willing to let go of? Things that we're clinging to that don't really matter and are not eternal. What will we be able to let go of for the sake of other people? We may just be 
short-lived bags of water. But that's exactly who God wants to use for the reclamation project of the world. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you in our smallness, in our finiteness, in our weakness. We can become agents of your program, your design for this earth. Your design that people prosper and are blessed. That that your designs are for a world that is more peaceful and just. That your designs are for good and not for evil. For the promise of this, God, we give you thanks. And in our mind's eye, we say, yes, for your great covenant promise, I'll do my part. I want to do my part and sign up for this call. Through Christ we pray. Amen.